Let's turn, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2 in your Bibles. Colossians chapter 2. As we continue to look at the issues that were becoming a, a, a dangerous time for the church in Colossae. It was a relatively young church. It was a church uh, made up of primarily Gentile believers. Paul was in prison at the time and uh, was writing this letter to encourage them but also to warn them and to prepare them in dealing with uh, these apostasies and these uh, false teachings that were coming through uh, a, a group of, of philosophers known as the Gnostics. We've talked much about them. We'll continue to do so as we uh, press on through our, our study of this book. Tonight, I, I have entitled this message, No Room for Legalism. We began last week a, a study dealing with the issue of circumcision and how circumcision uh, that, uh, that will affect us truly is not the circumcision so much of the body as, as it is the circumcision of the heart. Uh, the Lord certainly, in dealing with the children of Israel, in their times of disobedience and in their times of rebellion, would, would tell them, in, in, in fact, that here they were, circumcised yet acting like uncircumcised. Being circumcised of the body, but acting like the uncircumcision in their hearts. And even we in the church have to be very careful about that happening. Falling away from the truth falling away from the standard of holiness that God has given us in his word. But it isn't about keeping some kind of a legalistic attitude or, or keeping a, legal, a legalistic form of, 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 of service. It's realizing that Jesus came and, and actually fulfilled the law. And that's what matters to us. That now we, have not, we, we are, are not circumcised so much of the body as we have been circumcised with the circumcision that comes through Christ. As we mentioned last time, his dying on the cross was the circumcision of Christ for us. So let's read verses 10 through 15. Uh, verses 10 and 11 I'm reading only for context's sake. We're going to look at verses 12 through 15 and finish this particular section that we started quite a while back. But verse 10 says, and Paul says to the church and to us, and ye are complete in him. You are complete in him, you are fulfilled in him, you are perfect in Christ, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised, notice, with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him. In other words, he has made you alive together with him, 
having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. When you consider for a moment the infiltration of what seems like innumerable heretical and aberrant teachings into the church of Jesus Christ today, the pattern that we find in Paul's letter to the Colossians of the types of perverted teachings described in his warning to them stands out as foundational to this problem. The Gnosticism of Paul's day has been modernized philosophically, religiously, spiritualistically, and technologically. But it is the same lie as it has always been from the very beginning. It was a lie that began thousands and thousands of years ago in the garden where man and woman that, that, was, that were created by God the man created out of the dust of the ground, the, the, the woman that came from the side of, of the man. In the perfect environment that God created for them. It was there that we find the first question ever asked in the scripture. And the first question that was asked was asked by the serpent. We're told in Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The serpent throws out this question. Did God really say that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now he twisted, from the very beginning, he twisted what had been said to him. It wasn't every tree of the garden, it was one tree. This is the subtlety of the enemy. And in verses 4 and 5, after Eve tries to make clear to this serpent, that God was focusing upon one tree. That the serpent says in verse 4, the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, that then your eyes shall be open. Notice, your eyes are going to be open. And you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The very first question that I mentioned, found in the scriptures, has the serpent who twisted and contradicted God's word, throwing doubt, doubt, into the mind of the woman concerning God's purposes and plans for Adam and Eve. And really for all of mankind. He throws doubt. Remember the word doubt. Second, the, the, the serpent casts denial and contradiction upon the doubt. There's a second word to remember, denial. 
denying God's good intentions for them. Listen, what did, what did God told them? You could have fruit from any tree of the garden, which, by the way, included the tree of life. You could have fruit from any tree of the garden, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. So the serpent, first of all, puts doubt into the woman's mind and then puts this denial in, in the sense of denying God's good intentions for them. And in effect, he calls God a liar. And then thirdly, the serpent deceived the woman into disobeying God through his contradiction, telling her, in effect, all that God was keeping from them. Oh, listen, he doesn't want you to be like him. But you eat of that fruit and your eyes are going to be open and you're going to realize that you can be like him and, and therefore don't you just want to be like God? Now think about this for a moment. Is this not the goal of the New Age movement? And their desire to get into the church of Jesus Christ? Get people to reject the word of God? Subtly, putting the word of God aside, bringing doubt upon the word that God gave? Is this not the goal of some so-called Christian ministries that believe that since we're called the children of God, then we are then little gods too? That's a teaching that I hear sometimes on, on, on the internet, you know. I'm just checking these things out. I'm saying, huh? you know, where do they get this? Anytime there's mention of anyone called an Elohim in the, in the scriptures that is not God, is not a good thing. Other than the fact that God did raise judges who are called Elohim in that, in that particular sense of being judges. But most of the time, the, 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 the phrase making them Elohim is, is, is not a good thing. Because they can't handle it. Who of us can try to handle being God? I don't want to be. And then, this thing about becoming like God, is this not the goal of every false religion that builds upon man's efforts, such as Hinduism and Buddhism, Mormonism and the like? And there's others. And I had mentioned in our last study that, that Gnosticism was indebted to Jewish legalism, which it perverted to its own purposes and ends, simply because it focused not so much on the thou shalt not, even though it did, but it didn't focus so much on the thou shalt not, but on the thou shalt. Which brings to mind the idea that, well, listen, if you do these things, and thou shalt prosper. If you do these things, thou shalt rise to a greater level of spirituality. If you do these things, thou shalt be like God. And, and that is the thrust of false teaching, for the most part. That is the thrust of man's philosophies. From the beginning, many of the philosophies of the world discount a living, true, personal God. Secular humanism today in our own country as well as throughout the world. Secular humanism doesn't 
believe in a personal God, but it believes in the, the achievements that man can, can arrive at of himself, in and of themselves. So it is as if you are becoming like gods. Socialism and communism, as we hear the big debates going on today, but socialism, for the most part, coming out of, out of the, the uh, Soviet uh, uh, communistic uh, uh, philosophies and ideologies, is all based upon man being God. That's deceptive. So the thou shall nots are also important to the Gnosticism of, of Paul's time as well as ours, but we're going to deal with that later. We're just going to deal with these thou shalls today. And the pattern that I mentioned earlier, that, that which involves Greek philosophy, Jewish legalism, and Eastern mysticism, has been well outlined by Paul in his letter. That's why it's important to understand this book of Colossians very clearly because all of that is what is attacking the church today. It is a modern-day Gnosticism. Gnosticism, of course, is a word that deals with knowledge. But, it, but, but the question is, what kind of knowledge? Is it the knowledge of the Word of God? Is it the knowledge that comes from God? Is it, is it the knowledge that is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ? Or is it the knowledge of man who perverts through the enemy, who perverts the truth of the gospel? So what matters most are the statements uh, of Paul of biblical truths that counter every detail of philosophy, legalism, and spiritualism. We've already touched a little bit upon philosophy. We're not really done yet in this, whole, in, in this letter of Paul's, but we're going to focus our attention on the legalism that he's dealing with right now, as well as the spiritualism that will come later. But obviously the contrast to the legalistic practice of circumcision that we talked about last week is, is baptism, and this is where Paul goes in the next verse, which is verse 12, which is what we're going to look at tonight. Colossians 2, verse 12, where he says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. So first of all, it is important to note that baptism is in no way related to circumcision except in one thing that we're going to see in just a moment. But it is, it's important to know that baptism in no way relates to circumcision. Circumcision was done to a, child eight, a male child eight days after his birth. A baptism comes after a person believes in the work of Jesus Christ in their lives. Baptism is about water. Circumcision is about blood. Quite different. So what I mean by this statement that baptism is in no way related to circumcision is that there is no direct analogy between Christian baptism and that old age rite of circumcision. Circumcision in this passage is the death of Jesus Christ by which he fashioned a separation from the old, cleansing us now from sin and cleansing us of sin by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and reconciling us to God, fulfilling the spiritual meaning that is now illustrated 
by the believer's baptism. And we've talked about the believer's baptism, of course, being dead with Christ, being buried with Christ, and rising again to newness of life in Jesus Christ. That is that, that very illustration, that picture. But when it comes to baptism and circumcision in understanding, I come back to a couple of verses that I ended last time with. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where it says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And that's what happens to us when we become believers in Jesus Christ. We come to the point where our life is, is you know, the, the, the flesh is cut away from us spiritually. Our dependency upon flesh is cut away from us. Our life of sin is cut away from us by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the circumcision of Christ for us. And then we've come to know the Lord through faith in Christ. And we begin to love the Lord with our heart, with our soul, so that we might live in him. The same with uh, Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, let my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. You continue on as, as, as an uncircumcised person in the sense spiritually, not having any flesh cut away from your life or any dependency upon flesh cut away from your life. And there's only judgment that awaits. And so in effect, Paul was using the word baptism here in a figurative sense because no amount of material water could bury a person with Christ or make him alive in Christ because it isn't about the water. He says, bury with him in baptism wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Water baptism as we know it by immersion that's the, the, the physical understanding, the material understanding of, of baptism. Water, water baptism, this, uh, baptism, as we know it by immersion, is a picture of this spiritual experience. Again, it, it means to dip literally or to immerse literally, and it also means to identify with, some, with someone fi uh, figuratively, and of course in this case, it's identifying figuratively with Jesus Christ. So you see, when a person is saved, he is immediately baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ and identified with the head who is Jesus Christ. Immediately, at the, at the very moment that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what happens. How do we know? Because in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, it says, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, notice this, by one Spirit are we all baptized. Folks, that's figuratively. We are all baptized into one body, which we know as the church. We are baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have, all, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. We are one in Christ. We are buried with Christ. We are risen with Christ. We are alive in Christ. 
So this identification is simple, but it's profound. In other words, whatever happened to Jesus has also happened to us. When he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he arose again, we arose with him. And we left the grave clothes of our old life behind. In the tomb. As we will see so descriptively mentioned to us in chapter 3. Now you want to read later on, read chapter 3 ahead. Verses 1 through about 20. Or, well, actually 1 through 14. Uh, but, but let me just read to you Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. This will give you a little peek into what I mean. Paul said, if you then be risen with Christ, if you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. If you're risen with Christ, if you have identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then seek those things which are above. What are you going to be seeking? Not the things of this earth. Not the things on the, in the world, because that's what he goes on to say. He says, set your affection, your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Listen, we, we live on this earth. We, we, we get tempted every day by advertisements, to buy this or buy that, something that's new and improved, something that's better than it was before, something that better, that's better than everything else that, that might be of the same of the same uh, type of thing, you know. You've got to buy haagen and not uh, great value. You know, you know, but you're going to pay a little bit more. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying about that? You know, that's, that's the way it is. We're tempted every day. You know, get what you want to get, but you know the fact of the matter is, it's all going to burn. Don't set your affections here. I mean, live your life and with joy. Live it with, with gladness and, and enjoy the things that God has blessed you with. But don't keep your affections on this earth. Keep your affections in Christ in heaven. Because what that does also, it gets us to look up. And what did Jesus say? Keep looking up. And lift up your head. Your redemption draws near. And then he says, for you are dead. That's Paul's reminder about where we are with Christ when we died in Christ and identified with his death and his burial and resurrection. You're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's a good thing. And when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. That's an exciting thing. Christians should rejoice about that. We've got nothing to worry about, you know, in a sense uh, that, that uh, listen, Christ has done it all. There's nothing else that you and I have to do to get into heaven. We don't work ourselves into heaven. But now as believers in Jesus Christ, we run a race that we're going to win, but we need to run the race. And we need to stay focused on Jesus. And that's the problem with other things coming into the church is that take, they take your focus off of the Lord. They take your focus off of the Word. They take your focus off of the Spirit of God, the power of God. And just subtly give you a little bit of, of, of what you can accomplish. 
Folks, I can't accomplish anything without Jesus. And neither can you. I can't accomplish anything without the Spirit of God. And neither can you. I can't accomplish anything without the Word of God. And neither can you. But there are people who are trying. And it's not a good thing. So he says, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Are you looking forward to that? Are you looking for the blessed hope or the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? I hope you are. And if you're not, you need to get motivated real quick. Because it could happen at any moment. There is nothing that has to happen prophetically. I mean, things are happening, but there is nothing specific that has to happen before Jesus comes back for his church. And all that we're told in Scripture is be ready. Because when he comes, he comes quickly. By the way, are you reading the book of Revelation? Because we're told that there's blessing when you read the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is telling us what's going to happen when Jesus comes. And that's going to encourage you that he's coming pretty soon and he's going to come quickly and that you need to be ready. All the signs are pointing to this time and possibly this generation. We don't have room to defy that. We don't have time to defy those things because we want something in this world. Now, we're not, we're not of this world. We're citizens of heaven if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay, if I don't get going here, we're not going to finish. We'll, we'll stay here till about 10 o'clock. So let's move on. So all of, this is, all of this took place through the faith of the operation of God. Notice that phrase again in verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. It was God's power that changed us. It was God's power that changed you and changed me. Not the power of water and not the power of flesh. The word operation here, in, in, in the Greek, it is the word energeus. Energeus. We have English words from that word. It, the, the word energy comes from energeus. Energy, power, or the working of. The word operation speaks of God's energy, God's power. The operation of God, it says, who has raised him from the dead. The Lord has to perform the operation of the work upon a person if the person is to be acceptable to God. See, we cannot be acceptable to God in our flesh. We can't be acceptable to God because we have good works outweighing any bad works. And sometimes people are worried because they, the balance is kind of like this. You know, well, I have some good works and, and some bad works, but they've kind of balanced out. And we really want the good works to outweigh the bad works, right? Because that's the only way to get into heaven? Yes? No. That's a lie. It isn't the operation of you and me. It's the operation of God. So no person can operate on any person and make them acceptable to God. So it's not going to be a person of flesh that's going to be able to allow you to get into heaven. Whether you kiss their rings or not. 
God alone has the ability and power to make a person acceptable to him. So how does this then happen? It happens by faith. It happens by faith in Christ. When a person truly believes in Jesus Christ, God takes that person's faith and he counts it or credits it or reckons it to that person's account. And he looks upon the person as being in Christ. That's how God sees you if you have believed in Jesus Christ. He sees you as being in Christ. Because all of that has been put into your account as having died and having been raised with Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that God has the power to do what he declares. That's why it says at the end of verse 12, through the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. If he has the power to raise his own son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, he certainly has the power to raise us. So the proof is that he has already raised up one person, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, the person who was bearing all the sins of the world. The guilt and the punishment for every sin ever committed was borne by him, by Jesus Christ. I want you to remember something. And this comes out of the Old Testament. Remember the words of Genesis 15, verse 6. It speaks of Abraham. It says, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord. Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He believed God. He had faith in God. He put his faith in God. And he, God, accounted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. You believe in me, I account that to you for righteousness. I account that into your account, Abraham, as if you had never sinned before. Though Abraham was a sinner, just like you and me. No works of Abraham. Abraham didn't get extra credit. I mean, think about Abraham when he was called by God. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees back in the area of, of Iraq. And he called him out. And Abraham didn't know where he was going. So when you don't know where you're going and you're called by God to go someplace, which way are you going? Well, you start going, and guess what God does? He leads you. And he takes you. That's faith. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to end up where God wants me to be. So that is not the law then, is it? It's not legalism that Abraham was being affected by. For indeed, indeed the law hadn't even been given. And then Paul, in preaching Christ in Antioch, in the book of Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, listen to what Paul said here. He said, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe, notice, all that believe are justified from all things. It is put into their account from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So you cannot be justified by the law. You can only be justified by faith. 
That's why one of our greatest doctrines as believers in Jesus Christ is the doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. Now, Paul, in the book of Romans, and he, and he mentions a, a lot of this in Romans and Galatians. We're going to focus our attention a little bit more on Romans tonight. But in Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 24, listen to what Paul is saying. Now, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. It had been. Paul had been a, a, the, the, the best Jew, at least in his own mind, the best Jew that could ever be. So he knew the law. But in coming to Christ, he came to the realization that what Christ did on the cross has now fulfilled all of the law. And we don't come by law. We come now by grace and by faith. So he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Pure and simple. That's as clear as, can, as it can be said. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Yes, the law is good because it lets us know what sin is. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned. Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He has redeemed us, which means he has bought us back from where we were headed, where we were going, and where we were. He has bought us back to be his. And what has become clear is the practical application of these truths. Since we are identified with Jesus Christ, and Christ is the fullness of God, then what more do we need? What more do we need? Having now experienced the operation and the energy of God through faith in Jesus Christ, why are some people still turning to the deadness of the law? That was one question that Paul asked the, the, the people in, in, Galatia, in the uh, churches in, Gal, in Galatia, in the, uh, the churches of, of the Galatians there. Why have, after coming to the Lord, now, do you go back to the law? Because he was coming against the Judaizers that were telling, what I mentioned last week, were telling the people, listen, if you want to be a good Christian, you've got to first be a good Jew. So therefore, you need to be circumcised. Hey, there were a lot of Christians that were really tired of paganism in those days. And they said, well, we're looking at what the Jews do. And they're really nice, but that circumcision, that doesn't really appeal to me. Especially the men. Just does not appeal to me. So why are some turning to the deadness of the law? Let's go back to Colossians 2, verse 13, and, and look what it says here. Verse 13 of our text. And you being dead in your sins. Well, folks, you're already dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Remember, they were mostly Gentiles. Has he quickened together? Has he made you alive together? With him, having forgiven you. All trespasses. You've been forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. You're forgiven. 
What he does on the cross, what Jesus did, that's your circumcision. The circumcision of Christ. Verse 11. So you see, our uncircumcision was a testimony to our lost estate if we were Gentiles. If we were Gentiles, our uncircumcision was a testimony to our being lost. We had no covenant relationship with God. No Abraham to stand across our genealogical path. No Abraham for us. Our line went right back to the fallen Adam. That was our connection. It was circumcision that gave the Jewish people the potential of becoming a beneficiary of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God had made with Abraham, the unilateral covenant that would bless his people through Isaac and through Yaakov, Jacob. But it came with much pain because it was, circum it was circumcision. That would be the, the sign. But Gentiles had no such hope. Especially if circumcision were the only means by obtaining that covenant. And as I said, that's okay for an eight-year-old, I mean an eight-day-old baby, but you know, I'm not eight days old. It's a little hard. But what changed everything? What changed everything? Calvary changed everything. The cross changed everything. Remember that Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Just remember that first phrase he said, I am the way. That would be equivalent to the new and living way. That's God coming in flesh to us to show himself as being the fulfillment of all that had been given to the Jewish people from the very beginning. Even going back to the skins that were given to Adam and Eve in the garden after their sin. Everything would point to Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews 10 verses 19 and 20 where it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. What way is that? That's Jesus Christ by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us, set him apart for us because no one else could do what Christ could do for us. He consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. It was that perfect and pure and sinless flesh that bore our sins on the cross. Of Jesus. Therefore God has forgiven us all our trespasses so that we have a perfect standing before God. 
Now, we are still sinners, and we still make certain mistakes in our lives that sometimes cause us to go to the Lord and just pour out our hearts. And he reminds us what Christ did on the cross. Thanks for letting me know. I knew already. But thanks for letting me know. Just remember, my son died on the cross for you. And I see his blood. I see his blood on your account. So this leads us to verse 14 now of Colossians 2, where it says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Contrary to us, ordinances against us. What could that be? Did you know it was the law? It should be clearly known to us that Jesus took our sins to the cross. We should know that. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2 verse 24 of Jesus, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that being the cross, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. We're dead to sins. Why? Because we have identified with the death of Jesus Christ. We've identified with his burial, and now we identify with his resurrection. So we should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. He took that punishment for you and me to heal us from that disease of sin. The Lord didn't only take our sins to the cross. He also, listen, he also took the law to the cross. And he nailed it there to be forever out of the way. Oh, listen, we need to know the law. I I said this last week. We need to know the word of God fully from Genesis to Revelation. We need to know it. But we need to understand it. We don't live by the law legalistically. We live by faith in Jesus Christ. That is a major, major difference. The law was against us in that it was impossible for us to meet its holy demands. Which one of us could have kept every law that's found in the scripture? We couldn't keep one. When God gave ten commandments to the children of Israel at at Sinai, they all said, you know, when Moses came and brought the law, they they said, yeah, praise the Lord, we'll keep that law. Yeah, you broke every one in one night. By the way, there was one law given in the garden. Don't eat of that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did they keep that one law? They didn't even keep one. That was only two people. And even though the Lord never gave the the Ten Commandments to the Gentiles, per se, the righteous demands of the law, which are God's holy standards, they were actually written in their hearts. That's what the Word of God tells us. 
The law was written in the hearts even of the Gentiles, as we're told in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. He said, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. But they're going to perish. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. If they do what the law says, even though they don't have the law as far before them, or written before them, or you know where they have read them, yet they're doing the law, it's because the law has been written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts. The mean while, while accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. This is the reason why. It is not a confusing thing to know that when God judges people, he will always judge them righteously and he'll always judge them rightly. People will say, well, what about the, the person who, who lives in the deepest, darkest part of some, some country, you know, out in the you know, jungles, wherever they may be? They have the law written in their hearts. God, take care of, God will take care of them. We will be surprised how God has spoken to so many people in generations and generations and in, and in cultures and in societies down through the ages. God doesn't need us to, you know, be his advisor on these things. We need to be still and know that he's God. He's worked all that out. So the handwriting of ordinances, as it states in our text, was a certificate of debt, and it refers to the written Mosaic law. When Jesus shed his blood for sinners, he canceled the huge debt that was against sinners because of their disobedience to God's holy law. And the reason our holy God could be just in canceling our debt is because his son paid the full debt when he died on the cross. But Jesus did more than that. He took the law that condemned us and he set it aside so that we are no longer under its dominion. We are no longer under the dominion of the law or the dominion of sin for that matter. But we are now under grace. God's grace. God's undeserved favor. Romans 7, verse 6 says, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In the newness of spirit. What is the greatest evidence of that? What did Jesus tell his disciples before he went to the cross? Love one another as I have loved you. And the world will know that you are my disciples 
because you love one another. The law for some would have been an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Tooth. <laughs> an eye for an eye. Really? Yeah, well, that's because of the law. But now we are not under the law. He has delivered us from the law by dying on the cross. Romans 6, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. You know why we can do that? Because he has made access for us through the blood of Christ to come boldly into his throne of grace. Why? Because the veil has been torn, as we saw last week. So yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Jesus not only dealt with sin and the law on the cross, but he also dealt with the enemy. He dealt with Satan. He dealt with that serpent. By the way, it tells us in the book of Revelation, the serpent of old, which is Satan. That's for another time. We'll talk about that later. But for now, we need to understand that he dealt with Satan. Look at Colossians 2, verse 15, the, the, the last verse we're going to study tonight. And having spoiled principalities and powers. Well, Satan is certainly that, a principality and a power. And there's many others, which we'll talk about later. But having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. They were defeated when Jesus died on the cross. They were defeated. Yes, they've been given a leash. And some consider it might be a long leash because they're still getting around doing all kinds of weird stuff, causing all kinds of weird things happening in this world. But there is a glorious declaration here in this verse in that Jesus Christ has spoiled all principalities and powers, no matter who they are or what, they, what their force or energy is. The force be with you. Be careful of that. I know we have a lot of you know, Star Wars fans around here. Okay, that's all right. Want to watch it, that's okay. But you know what? Don't put your faith in it. Because that force, really, when it comes down to it, is based on these new age... Uh, philosophies. Just letting you know. Don't throw anything at me. No lightsabers. Nothing like that. But the word spoiled here in the Greek it's apekdusamenos. That word spoiled means to disarm and strip the evil forces of all their power. That's a powerful word. The point of this verse is to declare that Jesus Christ has defeated Satan and his evil spirits. All the forces and energies, powers and principalities of the universe, Jesus has defeated them. They're defeated. And believers in Jesus Christ, you need to know that. They're defeated. 
Listen, we don't have to sit back like some people and think, oh, my God, I, I really do hope that God will defeat the enemy at the end. Yes, oh, I hold real hope. Hey, read the end of the book. Have you all read the end of the book? Are you all here with me today? Okay, good. You're just taking it in. I just know that. I'm just taking it all in. Because, man, when you read the end of the book, man, Jesus wins, doesn't he? But who else does? We do. But we already won. Because we are new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He has triumphed over Satan. He's broken their power, destroyed their works. So you might ask, why is he still kind of powerful? Because there are still yet people that need to come to God by faith. And they need to trust in the Lord over and above what they see, what they hear, and what they experience in this life. Just like we did. We had to come to faith in Christ. Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Folks, we don't have to fear death anymore. Christ has overcome death. Amen? So listen to the words of Jesus again before going to the cross. In John 12, verses 31 through 33, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. He was going to be lifted up and raised so people would see him. Where did they see him? On the outskirts of Jerusalem. Outside of the gates of the city. And there he was on a hill. And they saw him. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Folks, we could go to Jesus if we wanted to. We could go to Jesus in the manger. But that's not what he meant when he said, and if I be lifted up. You could try to go to Jesus in the, in the temple, healing the sick, raising the dead. Or Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But that's not where he was lifted up. We needed to come to Jesus at Calvary. On the cross. Where he was lifted up. Where he drew us. Each and every one of us. Who has come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. This is where we've come. I haven't mentioned legalism much tonight, but that's what it's all been about. I want to leave you with a couple of quotes from a preacher of the past. His name was S. Lewis Johnson, who ministered for many years in Dallas at a church called Believer's Chapel. One thing that he said was this, one of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Christian Church today 
is the problem of legalism. <clears throat> One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was the problem of legalism. In every way, it is the same. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer. And with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, and listless profession. The truth is betrayed and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under the law is a miserable parody of the real thing. For many years I had written a little quote of, of Johnson's in my Bible that uh, I'll share with you and we'll close with this. You may want to write this down, it's not long. He said, man loves legalism because it provides the flesh with an opportunity to look good. Let me say that again if you want to write it down. Man loves legalism because it provides the flesh with an opportunity to look good. Well, I can tell you this, the flesh has nothing good in it. The flesh may be appealing to flesh, but it's not appealing to the spiritual to the eyes of the spirit that God has given us when we've given our lives over to Jesus. Let's remember the importance of, of John 3.16 tonight. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting we can't buy ourselves into heaven. We can't work our way into heaven. We can't bribe our way into heaven. The only way we can get to heaven is we need to die. We need to die in Jesus. And we need to identify with his death, his burial, and his resurrection.